0: minds of some of the world's best magic players and personalities. I'm your host James Sue. In this series my guests and I talk about Magic the Gathering but the game is just a starting point. It is hundred percent focused on the guests themselves. This is a place where I can highlight their passions, interests, and stories. You'll hear less talk about magic-specific strategy and more talk about what my guests have learned over the years. I hope that you will enjoy these free-flowing conversations. I'm always looking for feedback on the show if you have any questions, comments, or even guess whom you would like to see me interview in a subsequent show, just drop me a line on Twitter. My Twitter handle is James underscore HSU. That's James underscore HSU. I am more than happy to talk to you about anything, any constructive feedback or any questions you may have about the show. Today on Humans and Magic, I am talking to Alex Majlatan a long-time player and perennial silver pro from the Washington DC area. Alex is quite the magic player. He's played in 26 Pro Tours since 2006 and has accomplished top eight in eight Grand Prix events during that time. And four of those top eights were with the same deck, Affinity in Modern slash Extended. So he's a bit of an affinity specialist which is really cool in this day and age. And when I talked to Alex, we talked about sort of his origins growing up in the, uh, the D.C. or Maryland area, uh, some of his earliest magic memories, and some of the ways that he talks about getting better. I think it was very refreshing to talk to Alex because he has a very humble approach to the game. He sees himself as a student who can still get better, and he has a clear way of articulating himself, which is excellent. And most importantly, I think he is very self-aware. He understands where he needs to go and uh, what he needs to do to become better as a Magic player. So I had a really good time talking to Alex, and I hope you'd enjoy this interview as well. guys, today I am here with a very accomplished Magic player in Silver Pro from the Washington, D.C. area. I am here with Alex Majlatan. Alex, how's it going?
1: Hey, it's going good.
0: Hey, so uh, thanks for doing this, and uh, whereabouts are you tonight in the part of the world that you're in?
1: Uh, tonight I am in my home in Maryland, uh, the Washington, D.C. area.
0: Nice! All right. So uh, how are things going? What's what's uh, what's what's new with you?
1: Um, not too much. Uh, The pro season just started and I'm kind of planning out what tournaments I'm going to attend and how I'm going to prepare for them, how I'm going to approach the season as a whole.
0: Nice. Are you doing the magic thing as a full time pursuit? Um,
1: right now it's Mostly just uh, a very time-consuming hobby, since uh, I have a a full-time job. I am looking into how I might be able to do magic full-time in various different ways, and I'm finding that there are a lot more options than I would have thought at first.
0: Oh, very cool. So what are some of the options that you've considered?
1: Uh. So, the most obvious one is content production. Um, There are a lot of people who write strategy articles or do magic videos or podcasts similar to this one. That's a a, a good avenue. Um, And then there's a whole other world that hasn't really been explored yet um, about uh, coaching. Uh, And there are... Options that you could do it one on one coaching, like maybe uh, personal sessions with someone. Uh, I'm more interested in team coaching. I'm, I'm looking into ways that I could put together a, a system, a program for coaching uh, a group of Magic players that want to take on one tournament or maybe a series of tournaments.
0: Oh, okay. Very cool. That definitely sounds like an underexplored thing for Magic. Um, and I don't know if you've ever played poker or have been involved in poker, but it sounds similar to things I've heard in the past about coaching and teams and things like that.
1: Yeah, I did play uh, poker online back when you could do that uh, in the United States, and I did have a a one-on-one coach, so...
0: (laughs) Oh, nice, nice. Uh, But yeah, I'll I'll get back to that in a little bit. I kind of want to just start from the beginning, Alex, and ask you a little bit about your background just for the listeners sure um, yeah we know that you're you're a pretty accomplished um, pro player I mean you've been to the Pro Tour uh, quite a handful of times I think 26 or so times so that's uh, that's uh, pretty darn impressive I, I think uh, for those of us who are not really uh, on the Pro Tour I think that's that's really good uh, but maybe just start from the beginning tell me a little bit about you know where where you grew up and a little bit about your your family and, and background
1: um, well, I have always uh, been in this area. I've never really moved too far. Uh, I went to college in Baltimore uh, after attending high school in the Annapolis type area. Uh, and then right after, th- right after I graduated college, I started working in the D.C. area. So I've kind of toured the area more or less. Uh, my dad moved here after he graduated to work for Geico, which is a major employer in the D.C. area, and my family has never really moved since then, and my mom and my dad uh, had five total kids. I'm the youngest of five, and we've all kind of bounced around this area ever since.
0: Nice. All right. So you have a quite a big family. I mean, what was it like growing up in the in the household? I I understand that you're the the youngest one in the in the family.
1: I am. I'm the youngest by a lot. Uh, my sister is the oldest one, and she is 17 years older than me. And then the next closest in age to me is my brother, who's nine years older than me. So growing up, I had the support of a lot of, you know, older siblings without any of the complications. I never really fought with my brothers because by the time I was old enough to, you know, want to fight with them, they were all already, you know, graduating school and getting jobs and stuff. So it's weird. I have a big family, but it was also kind of like I was an only child.
0: (laughs) All right. So, I mean, when you were much younger than your siblings, you didn't have to fight with them, but did you want to do more things with them? But just found that you couldn't because you were because of the age difference or where you guys were and at that part in your lives, or
1: um, not so much. I kind of was always a a quiet kid who was really good at you know entertaining himself. Uh, so I. I did like it whenever my brothers and my sister, you know, made an effort to, you know, hang out with me, uh, take me places and stuff, but I never really, you know, bugged them too much to do that. I see.
0: So what were some of the things that you did as a kid to entertain yourself? Like, um, I'm guessing you played games, but were there other things as well? Um... Mostly
1: just games. Uh, I was really into video games, and I was really into building Legos. Those were my two biggest hobbies that I've had since I was, like, five years old.
0: <laughs> Very nice. So do you remember what were some of the your favorite games, or were there just too many?
1: Um, I really liked all of the role-playing games, like the Final Fantasy-type games. And I would spend hours and hours and hours playing those and I really enjoyed playing them by myself, but then I also really liked it whenever my friends uh, at school would play them so that we could you know, talk about our experiences with them.
0: Uh, so that, was that the Super Nintendo? Yeah, yeah.
1: I started playing the role-playing games when the Super Nintendo came out.
0: Ah, uh, okay. That It sounds like we might be in roughly the same age group, which is pretty cool. Uh, I'm guessing it's like... Final Fantasy three, or I guess they, it's six, but it was three in the United States. And games like that, or yeah, I definitely played that one. Okay, very cool, very cool. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you you grew up in that area and with the area that you're still in. What what's the area like? I mean, just uh, outside of your family. I mean, what was it like actually being in that area? Because I've not actually grown up on the on the on the East Coast or in, in the DC area. So
1: um. It's strange. Um, Maryland
0: has a lot of
1: different flavors depending on what part you go to. Uh, The closer you get to DC, and you know, DC is a very unique city with a lot going on. uh, And then uh, when you go out to the Annapolis area, which is close to where I went to high school, it's uh, it's more of it's hard to explain. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of sailing type activities going on, and they really like uh, lacrosse in that area. The high school I went to was a big high school for lacrosse. Uh, and then uh, Baltimore, closer to where I went to college, Baltimore is a very unique city. It's uh, I always like to tell people that it's very real. Like every experience that I had in Baltimore. Um, Everybody was just trying to do exactly what they wanted to do in Baltimore, and you, know, you could always find somebody to relate to doing the things, like, compared to D.C., where it's a very high-powered area, where um, you know, all of the politics happen there. There are a lot of uh, government agencies,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's mostly the flavor in D.C., but when you go to Baltimore, it's completely different.
0: So you said in Baltimore people just do what they want to do. Can you give me an example of that? I mean, it's just people just want to are very self-interested in in their own thing or is it did you mean something else by that?
1: Um, I meant mostly in terms of uh art. Baltimore is a really big city for art. Uh every year they have a festival, a giant outdoor festival called Artscape. And uh, that's a really cool festival uh, if you ever get a chance to go. It's just a big outdoor festival where uh, a lot of artists come and, you know, through whatever, whatever different medium they prefer, they'd show off their art. And uh, it's just a lot of fun to, to see what's on display. Um, it's also, uh, it hosts, uh, it was the host of uh, the biggest anime convention on the East Coast, uh, Otacon. Uh, I don't really watch that much anime these days, but, you know, back when I was in high school, that was one of the cool things to do. And, uh, I loved going to that convention.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, it's, it's funny you said, uh, I don't watch much anime and then I thought at all. And then you said these days. Uh, so it sounds like you did do that quite a, quite a bit. And so that, that must've been cool to be a part of that, that convention or that scene, right?
1: Yeah, it's just, it amazed me that something so big happened, you know, like 30 minutes from where I live.
0: Right, right. Okay, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit, and I want to ask you how you first started playing Magic, because everybody has their story for that, and I want to know when you got hooked into the drug that is Magic the Gathering. (laughs) Um.
1: So when I was in middle school, I had a best friend named Philip, and we generally had the same interests, which were mostly just video games, and then one year after summer vacation, he came back uh, and he had these things called magic cards, and he was also really into uh, drawing. He was a big artist, and he liked magic cards because he liked the art on the cards. That's why he got them. So we looked at the cards and we found that there was a game attached to them. So we learned how to play poorly. We had our own interpretation of the rules, but we kind of just got hooked. And, you know, for a while in middle school, magic replaced all the video games that we played.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it was Philip that got you into the game, but what were some of the things that, that attracted you? Was it the art? Was it, the the game itself like what what was it specifically do you remember?
1: Um, so I'd mentioned that I'd really liked playing role playing games uh, when I first started playing Magic. Uh, the big set was Ice Age,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I remember the cards that I got were Ice Age cards, and I would sit and I would read all of the flavor text on all the cards, and it was just this big expansive universe, and it reminded me a lot of. A role-playing game and it kind of just sucked me in and uh it was really fun building decks like it reminded me of setting up your team in a role-playing game uh building your deck but you know instead of just your team you kind of got to control the story in a sense you know you got this card and you can build a deck around this card and recreate the story
0: right yeah that's definitely very attractive I think for me as well When I first got into magic with my brother, it was just the flavor of it, and people often, as we get more competitive in the game, we often forget these kind of things. Now it's like, ah, I don't care what what the card is, you know, like I'm not going to read the flavor text. (laughs) But back then, I mean, as a kid, it was it was a lot of fun, right? Just just uh, being 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 exposed to all that world building. So, Um, so then, do you remember when you were playing the game initially with Philip? And Ice age, uh, what were some of the earliest decks that you you built? Um, I remember
1: the first deck I built that had a theme um, it was gosh, this was a long time ago it was uh it was a phasing deck I mean, phasing was a the, the super old mechanic from the Mirage Visions era oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's coming <And> back.
1: <laughs> I've I had a deck, i had a phasing deck with, uh, there was an enchantment that whenever you attacked with a creature, it phased out at the end of combat, so the first real cohesive deck I built was this deck where you played all these phasing creatures, which were really under and then you played that enchantment, and then you got the benefit of attacking with them every turn.
0: Right. So that was, so a, that pretty was, good, that was a pretty good combo, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, you had to draw the veil, but once you did,
0: <laughs> yeah. Did you play? Uh, did Did you run four copies of that, or you just try to get lucky and draw like the two two copies in your deck?
1: Uh, I don't even remember if I had four, um, because our collections were just so scattered at the time. You know, right. It was. We knew that there was a rule that you could only have four copies of a card in your deck, but yeah. uh, we didn't always have access to four of everything. So I would like to think that I had four copies because I don't think it was a super desired card among the people that we played with. But
0: mm-hmm.
1: I wish I could remember.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, uh have to really uh, uh, use the Wayback Machine sometimes to, to remember those earlier Magic games. But uh, as part of that, what were some of your favorite... Magic cards, I mean, was it related to phasing, or was it something that you, you, uh, you, you, you became your favorite card later on? Um,
1: well, I actually, I have two cards sitting on my desk that uh, mean a lot to me from when I first started playing. Uh, one card is uh, it's called The Wretched, and it was a rare from Chronicles, and it was actually the first rare I ever opened. Um, and I remember getting the card and the art on the card just looks really cool. It's a really intimidating creature. Yeah. Uh, and I definitely had a couple of decks with that card. I would always just try to throw that card into whatever deck I had. Um, so that was my first rare and that was the first card I had that really stood apart from all the other cards. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the other card is—it's uh, such a silly card. It's—it's uh, it's, uh, righteousness, and it's not a very good card. Uh, it's really good at what it does. Uh, it's just an instant for one white mana. that says uh, target blocking creature gets plus seven plus seven until end of turn. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you're if you're in combat and you're blocking a creature, you play that on your blocking creature, and it's probably going to be able to to beat the other creature in combat and. I I keep that card because that was the first card that I ever really obsessed over, and uh, by that I mean I just, I loved the art on the card, I kind of loved what the card represented, Um, it felt to me like it was a a power move, like a super special, like you just play that on your creature and it just became super strong and killed the other creature in combat, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I don't know, it felt cool whenever I got a chance to play it. It felt like I was using a, a, a super move.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So I keep those cards on my desk because, you know, I always remember... I always like to look at them and remember what kind of cards I liked when I first started playing Magic.
0: Yeah, very cool. Uh, I was thinking that you might have answered something related to um, the decks that gave you the the most success in competitive Magic, but... Uh, No, those are great answers, and uh, I'll get back (laughs) to that in a little bit. Uh, So my next question, Alex, is, you know, you start playing the game uh, with your friend. how did you, this is the question that I love uh, getting people's uh, answers on, is like, how did you actually go from playing casually to actually getting into tournament or competitive magic? Like, what was the the turning point? Because, you know, a lot of people, they never end up... um, doing that going to the store for a tournament right what was what what were the circumstances around that for you
1: um so i had sort of three phases of magic um when i first started playing uh and uh, we were in the 5th grade uh which was 1995 and we played until uh until we graduated middle school until we graduated 8th grade in 1998 uh and for those first couple years we mostly played amongst ourselves but then we learned how to build decks and then we learned that other people played at you know card stores and comic stores and then they held tournaments and we would we would play in this local weekly tournament that was on Saturday night every week uh I always think back because I think it's weird that Friday night magic is the big thing now but our our weekly local tournaments were on Saturdays Mm -hmm. uh at Alliance Comics in Bowie Maryland um And we would go to that tournament and it was cool because we lost a lot and we got to see how other people built decks and, um, got to like kind of stay ahead of all the new cards, Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, we might not have, uh, had access to them, Mm -hmm. uh, reading our duelist magazines and, uh, you know, buying our, our booster packs from Toys R Us. Uh, so that was kind of my first phase. And then, you know, we all when we all graduated, we all went to different high schools, and I kind of quit playing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I didn't start playing again until I was in the 12th grade in high school, uh, and that was 2002. And I remember the newest set was Apocalypse. So I started to play again because... Uh, I was in a club at school, and one of the kids in that club played, and he was like, oh yeah, I have Magic cards, and so I dug out my old Magic cards, and we started to play, and it was really fun, so I kind of looked into what new cards were available, and I would play with him, and that's when I first started to play Friday Night Magic at the, I used to play at the Wizards of the Coast stores, back when they still had those, Mm -hmm. Um, So that was kind of the second phase. And then the third phase was the competitive phase. And I've never really stopped playing since then. I first started to compete in bigger tournaments in 2003, 2004. Uh, That's when I kind of made the jump from, you know, I really like this game to I want to try and succeed at this game. Uh, And that's when I learned what like a Grand Prix trial was, what a Pro Tour qualifier was. What Grand Prix and pro tours were nationals, all those various tournaments, and uh, mm-hmm. I kind of just wanted to dive right in okay, and okay. that 's when I did, and I got lucky to experience a little bit of success, and that has kind of motivated me ever since then
0: okay well let 's go back a little bit because uh, your your answer is very interesting because. You you talk about the first and second phases being in grade five and grade twelve, and of course you all of us right when we start playing um, tournaments uh, we may not even have goals in mind to be playing in a grand prix or a pro tour. We didn't even know what those things were. So how did you overcome that period of initial losing? Because I feel like there's there's there must have been something in you mentally to make you want to go back to it, right? Because you know admittedly you. Or you admittedly said that you were not very good in the beginning. None of us really are. So what, what was it that like, made you go back to, to playing? Because like, in grade five, you, you play a little bit. You, you managed to not do it for a while. And then, of course, uh, someone hooked you back in um, towards the end of high school. But how did you, like, like what's your, what was your mindset then? Like Why did you want to keep playing despite you know, the, the losing that I would expect happens to, to players in the beginning?
1: Uh, are you referring to when I wanted to get back in uh, when I was in high school or when I wanted to start competing?
0: Let's start with high school.
1: Um, so I, when I first started playing again in high school, it was just another way to connect with the people that I was uh, in hanging out with in my club in high school. It was the math club. And um, I kind of didn't really have a lot of meaningful relationships in high school until, uh, I was a junior and a senior. And, uh, as soon as I started to develop some, I kind of learned more about, you know, what it was like to, to maintain a relationship now that I'm, you know, not a kid anymore. And so I thought it was really exciting that there was another thing that I could potentially bond with someone and that's kind of what got me back into it—just wanting to, wanting to do this activity with these people, so that I could, you know, be a better friend.
0: Right, right. No, that's that's a great reason, right? I mean, I think for all of us, it's the the community and the friendship, and uh, yeah, that's that's great. And so then the phase towards the end where you wanted to get really competitive. I found it interesting because you said you were lucky enough to win some tournaments, but I mean, let's let's go back a little bit. I mean, to that time. I mean, you must have prepared. you must have played. You must have been better than the other players in the area to actually do that, right?
1: Um, uh, at least I thought so back then. Um, <laughs> I, studied, uh, I studied math in college, and I knew that I wanted to study either math or engineering. Uh, when I was graduating high school. And I think that a lot of kids who study, you know, those science math fields, at some point they kind of realize, hey, I'm, you know, kind of smart. And that's when I realized that, you know, I could leverage that in this game. You know, in magic, if you're smart, it's not as hard for you to win. Uh, so I was really trying to push that and I'd played in a couple tournaments and I just kind of stumbled into doing well. I say stumbled because, you know, back then I would have thought, oh, I won because I'm so smart, but, you know, looking back on it, really just a lot of, uh, a lot of things happened at the right place at the right time. Um, because I certainly wasn't preparing as methodically as I do these days, uh, and I'm sure that I was doing a lot of things wrong. But you know, when you kind of stumble into victory like that, you—it's like an ego boost. You feel kind of good. You feel like you're doing something right, and that makes you want to do it more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Was it some kind of validation also for the time that you had spent playing Magic?
1: Yeah, it was cool because uh, I remember one of the tournaments that I succeeded in at first. Uh, it was uh, it was a PTQ, and I didn't win, and I certainly didn't know what what winning even meant. Like I probably played in that tournament without realizing what the pro tour was, but I'd made it all the way to the top eight, and when I lost in the semifinals, I won. A huge prize, a prize that was huge for me at the time. I won, you know, back then when you lost in the top eight, you would, I mean, depending on who the organizer was, but I'd won over a box of cards, like a box and a half or something. And that was a lot of stuff to me back then. Mm -hmm. So I remember taking all, all those packs, uh, back with my friends and, you know, we just drafted them. We had fun and we were living really high Mm -hmm. right after that one tournament. So it was then I kind of realized wow I can play magic and I can win a lot of stuff playing magic so maybe this is worth my time maybe this is what I want to be spending my time on if it's fun and and I can win
0: so that was the turning point for you was like doing well in that PTQ and then deciding I wanted to keep keep doing this and and have a chance at winning more consistently is that right?
1: Yeah, I would say so. I wouldn't say that it was just that PTQ, but it was certainly one in a line of events where I had done better than I expected to, and won more of a prize than I ever thought I could win playing Magic.
0: I see. And then, what was it like from that to going into the pro tours? Because I understand that you've uh, you've top eighted several Grand Prix. I think it's eight. And, uh, you played in over 25, I think 26 pro tours. Um, did you just have, since that time, did you just consistently try to qualify and, and and get on the pro tour? Is that, is that what happened? You just basically went all in or full time on Magic?
1: Um, well, what happened was I had played in, uh, the regional championship in 2004 and, uh that format was uh, was a really broken format that was the for- that was the first format where affinity was really broken oh, and yeah. affinity is the deck that I'm kind of like built a niche for myself for playing over and over and um, but back then I'm sure that my the my affinity deck wasn't very good but it had four skull clamps in it and skull clamp was a really broken card yeah. so it wasn't that hard for me to just stumble into a bunch of wins and qualify for Nationals. And that was my first big tournament, and it was the first time I really felt, wow, I'm doing great at Magic. So I went to Nationals that year, U.S. Nationals in 2004, and uh, I did really well in Constructed, but I did horribly in Limited. But that didn't really stop me from being motivated to keep playing, Um, especially because I thought that I was – Really, really good. Much better than I actually was.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you had made it to that, that stage, so I mean, I think the results show that you were pretty good, right?
1: Um, I guess so. I, I must have been doing some things right.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I I don't know you very well, but I do feel like you have this sense of humility because uh, you said, oh yeah, everybody had... Um, it was a broken deck, you know you had the skull clamps, which were later banned, but the fact is, everybody else had those tools, so if you still made it out on top, that must have meant that you were still a better player
1: <laughs> i I hope so. I hope I was better than some of my opponents, but it was so long ago that uh, I think I was mostly just abusing the fact that some people still were showing up to that tournament without affinity or skull clamps
0: i see I see so I mean at that point, you were already. Uh, a full-on spike right like you wanted to find the best cards to maximize the chances of winning you were you were not concerned with some of the other things right
1: yeah i was definitely a spike by then i was only interested in playing the deck that gave me the best chance to win
0: right but how did you become an affinity specialist because i mean the deck was probably broken at that point on but it wasn't continuously broken, right? So what what was it about that deck specifically that really really drew you in into that?
1: Well, that was the first tournament that I the first premier level tournament that I'd qualified for and I did it with Affinity, so I kind of thought, "Oh, wow, Affinity, this is my deck because I I won with it, I qualified for the tournament with it and I kind of kept playing it in that uh, at that point and I would I played it You know, they banned the skull clamp and I still played it. And then it, it, you know, terrorized standard for all that while and I still played it that whole time. And then they banned it even more. They just banned all the artifact lands and they banned Ravager and all that stuff. And I still tried to play it. Um, Mm -hmm. Somebody had developed a version of it that was, that still used all of the cards that they didn't ban. And it was really not very good, but I, I, you know, I still wanted to play it. And then when the cards finally rotated out of standard, um, there was extended back then, and mm-hmm. I just took my cards and went straight to extended. Um, so I would play it in all of these extended tournaments, and um, I went to an extended grand prix in 2005 in Charlotte, and that was. Uh, a really big tournament for me because I played Affinity and I played uh, a version of it that I had kind of developed myself. Like, I chose all the cards in it myself for very specific reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I almost won the tournament. I made it all the way to the finals. Mm -hmm. And after that, uh, I developed kind of a local reputation among my friends for being the Affinity expert because I had done so well in so many tournaments with it well so many being two
0: (laughs) yeah no that's that's great i mean you were the expert right and uh it sounds like you know the deck inside and out um i think i think it was when i was talking to ben freeman he mentioned that you had these extremely worn out uh affinity cards i can't remember if it was ben or jarvis but uh I'm, i'm assuming i'm assuming they were referring to you
1: yeah, that they were. Uh, my affinity cards, uh, the ones that I play in modern tournaments today, uh, are actually the same ones that I was playing in those tournaments that I'm talking about now in 2004 and 2005.
0: Oh, very nice, very nice. Um... Yeah,
1: the Ravagers, the Platings are still the same. Of course, you know they've printed more cards since then, but you know as much as I play with the deck, it doesn't take that long for me to 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 beat them into the same shape. <laughs>
0: That's pretty cool, because uh, I I love listening to this kind of stuff, because it's not that common to have competitive players uh, really zone in on one particular archetype. I mean, the other guy I can think about is um, Patrick Sullivan and his uh, affinity for burn or or red, but that's really cool that you have that uh, same kind of affinity for a particular um, style of deck and magic.
1: Yeah, Patrick, he has his burn box, uh red box where he has all of the cards that he could use to build a a, a burn deck and I have a I have an affinity box so.
0: <laughs> nice, nice. Um okay, so switching gears just a tiny little bit. I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of your approaches to magic. So maybe I'll start things off by asking you um, you 've been a very successful player you 've made uh quite a number of different runs. If you can look back uh what were some of the things that really helped you like whether they were habits, whether it was the way you practiced uh whether it was some other things. This is kind of a general question, Alex, but I just want to understand and maybe this is a way that could potentially help someone who listens to this like how did you how did you get better at magic? <laughs>
1: Um, the best way for me to answer that question is to start by saying that I'm still trying to get better. Uh, I think that there's always something to learn and the biggest way that I've kind of gotten better over the years is, um, by figuring out what doesn't work. And I've played a lot of magic and I've had a lot of, uh, kind of impressions about, you know, how to win, how other people succeed, and I've tried a lot of methods, and I've, I've tried a lot of, uh, tried to test a lot of ideas I've had about magic, and uh, I find that by playing a lot and finding what finding out doesn't work, it lets you cover a lot of ground uh, in terms of finding what does work.
0: Okay, but is it difficult to experiment with all these kind of things? Because uh, oftentimes, as Magic players, we'll shortcut, we'll rely on the wisdom of others to, or articles or people to say, this is good, this is bad. Uh, does that mean that you're constantly trying to figure things out for yourself? Uh, what works and what doesn't work? Like, are you experimenting with a lot of different builds of decks Uh, Are you just talking to people more about what works and what doesn't work? I'm trying to understand sort of uh, your system for doing that.
1: Um, I mean, I think talking to people is another really good tool. Uh, Just talk to everyone you can, especially people that are better than you. Uh, I do that a lot. Um, What I've been doing over the years is there's always been kind of a hive mind of wisdom from the competitive players, and... I always try to kind of put my finger on what that wisdom is and try to emulate it. And uh, in doing that, it kind of exposes some holes that I have in my thought processes. Um, To give a concrete example, um, I played in a Pro Tour in 2011. It was the... Uh, Scars of Mirrodin Block Constructed Pro Tour. And uh, at this point, I had played in a bunch of Pro Tours, and I never really had much success. Um, but I went into that Pro Tour, and uh, the big deck of that Pro Tour was Tempered Steel. It was like uh, the aggro deck. It was kind of like the Affinity deck, but for that block. And you know, all of my friends kind of expected me to start playing that deck because, hey, this is like Affinity, right? And mm-hmm. I I've kind of...
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: i would kind of gone into that pro tour with the mindset of, oh, you know what? The pros never play the obvious deck. They never play the aggro deck. They always play control. And so I'm going to resolve not to play the aggro deck because I don't want to lose again at the pro tour. And so I spent all my time trying to develop the best blue black control deck that I could find in the format. Uh, And I'd chosen blue-black just because I thought that the blue-black control cards in that format gave me the best tools. Um, So I built my deck, and I went to the Pro Tour, and lo and behold, the best team at the time, which was the original Channel Fireball team, uh, and that's that's when teams were first starting to form as well. So they had done all their testing, and they found that Tempered Steel was the best deck. And so here I was thinking, man, the pros never play the aggro deck. What's happening? And, you know, it turns out the pros actually just tried everything against everything else, and they'd found that the aggro deck was the best deck that time. Mm -hmm. So the lesson that I kind of learned from that tournament was uh, you really have to try everything. You really have to cover as much ground as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you can't just rely on... Uh, kind of things that you may have thought were true in the past about Magic, Uh, because Magic is a very dynamic game. It's just always changing. And here I was going into this tournament with the wisdom that that I thought was wisdom that, you know, the control deck always ends up beating the aggro deck over time. Um, And so it's always the best deck for the Pro Tour, and I was wrong, (laughs) because I just didn't practice in the right ways. So I learned a lot about, you know, questioning my own impressions about magic uh, and questioning my own methods of preparation and you know, figuring out that, yeah, you have to be a little bit more thorough when you prepare for these tournaments. Yeah. So that, that's probably the, the best example I can give about you know, just being wrong and how it can really help your magic game.
0: And that's not easy, right? Because for all of us as players, we often feel comfortable in a state or a style that we, we like. Um, and it's, even though I think, I think it would have been easy for you to just play Tempered Steel, but if you had, you would not have learned that lesson that you did and you would have not had matured as a player, right? Like you, I mean, from my perspective, it sounds like it was a pretty big deal for you. You, it's a pro tour. So it's an opportunity of, I mean, they're, they're not easy opportunities to come by. You could have played the deck that, um, uh, you know, that maybe others or yourself would have played in another in an alternate universe, but you didn't, you challenged yourself, and more importantly, you learned something, right? I think that's uh, that self-awareness is really hard to attain as a Magic player, if I may say so.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree, and I think um, that's probably one of my biggest strengths as a player, I think, is self-awareness. So I've always tried to capitalize on that ever since...
0: And uh, in that pro tour, how did you end up? How did you end up doing? Like in terms of the the overall tournament and the results. Um, I ended up.
1: Uh, I went three one and one in constructed actually, which I don't think is that bad. Um, then came to the draft portion, and in the draft portion, I went one one and one. So my record on day one was four two and two, which is a Really weird record to have because you know it 's not super easy to get a draw at the pro tour, and here I had two yeah um, and back in two thousand and eleven when that tournament was the cut to day two was you needed five wins or fifteen points, and so i didn't make day two of the tournament, and I felt like it was because of my poor draft preparation that i didn't
0: i see so uh, as you're playing in these pro tours, what are some of the the, the things that you've learned? I mean, uh, you mentioned a big one, but uh, the, the Pro Tour level is a completely different level from it, the levels below it from what I understand. I've not been on the Pro Tour myself, but, I mean, what were some of the things that you had to grow up and, and learn quickly as you played in in Pro Tours? Um, I
1: a couple things that I learned uh, are that Pro Tours are one tournament, and it's a really important tournament, but it's still just one tournament. It's possible to have a deck that's really good for a Pro Tour and then have that same deck be really bad the week after, but um, you shouldn't really care about that because all you're doing is trying to win the Pro Tour. Um, So I think it's important to try everything, and some things that you think might be bad because they're not beating every deck that you thought might show up at the Pro Tour, end up being really good choices for that pro tour because they end up beating the only decks that people will actually show up to the pro tour with. Um, that's one really important lesson that I've learned. Um, and another one is the importance of the booster draft. Uh, I know a lot of people, I mean, when I first started playing in the, with the competitive players in my area, after we all started tackling tournaments, we loved to draft and that's all we ever did. Um, but you know, these days, most of the most of the tournaments focus is on constructed. So you have a lot of people who don't really draft that much uh, and spend all of their time preparing for constructed. And constructed is really important because it's ten rounds out of a sixteen round Pro Tour. But limited is six rounds out of the sixteen rounds Pro Tour. So you can't really ignore it. Um, I've noticed that all of the people that top eight the pro tours, they usually have limited records of at least four and two. Sometimes someone will squeak in at three and three if they have a really good constructed record, but mm-hmm. uh, for the most part, you have to be good at limited uh, or at least prepare for the draft format if you want to win in construct in, in the pro tour.
0: Okay. And so that's what you've had to do, right? Is uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but about the second point, like you've had to uh, invest more in limited. I take it.
1: Yeah, uh, I noticed that uh, a lot of people were becoming very methodical about prepar- preparing for
0: the limited portion
1: of the Pro Tour, and uh, I wanted to do that. I wanted to, you know, I, I, my career is, uh, I mean, data science, and I think that magic it's a really really hard game to quantify because you know it's it's just there's so many moving parts but i also think that not many people have really tried very hard to quantify it yet and that's changing because there are a lot more uh resources out there from players who are trying to apply all kinds of uh advanced analysis to different parts of magic um but that's something that i wanted to do in particular with my pro tour team was uh have a very, very scientific method for limited, as scientific of a method as I possibly could. And so that's something that fascinates me, and I spend a lot of time thinking about it. You know, I've done it for the past three pro tours with my team, and I'm always thinking about different ways I could improve it.
0: Nice. So you're kind of the the brains behind the team or the quants uh, of, <laughs> of the limited part of the team. That's, yeah. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Okay, so you talked about um, you know limited being a big part of uh, the Pro Tour uh, preparation, and also just understanding that it's one tournament. Was there, Were there other things as well for you in, in things that you, you learned along the way? Um,
1: probably the only other one that I can think of off the top of my head is that
0: there's really no
1: substitute for actually playing the games of magic. Um I spend a lot of time thinking about magic, especially when I can't play like you know if I have downtime at work or something uh and i've approached a lot of tournaments by just reading articles online all week and never playing a single game uh and I think that is not enough these days because you know you learn more from ten games of magic than you do from. Thinking about it for 50 hours, I think. Uh, you know, I just made those numbers up, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if something like that were true. You just learn so much more from actually playing, uh, and you know, now whenever I am preparing for a tournament, you know, I still think it's important to think, and it's, it's important to play thoughtful, meaningful games. But I don't believe it's possible to get by without playing any games.
0: Got it. So the preparation is extremely important, and uh, you've been doing it for a number of years. But what I'm wondering is, how do you keep the fire going? Like, how do you make magic part of your life, fun, competitive? How do you, how do you keep the motivation to, um, to keep it up? Like, that's, that's got to be um, a, a big thing for a lot of players, is the motivation in the fire. So, so for you, what's, how do you, how do you manage that? How do you process that?
1: What really keeps me going is, um, so I've made a ton of friends playing Magic. And I'm very, very lucky to have made so many friends through Magic. And uh, for one reason or another, we're all just captivated by Magic. And so when I am playing Magic with a group of friends and... I see them want to win, or not even just win, just want to get better, want to understand more about the game. And you know, a lot of people uh, in my area look up to me now because you know I've played in so many Pro Tours, I have so much experience, I have a lot of wisdom to offer. Uh, and you know, when people kind of come to me for various wisdom, and I, you know, of course I want to help them as best I can when I see that they want to win, that they want to improve so much and, you know, that they're hanging on to my every word, you know, even if it's uh, not as informed as I want it to be, that kind of what's, that's kind of what keeps me going, what keeps me wanting to play more and learn more and win more. I just want to, you know, succeed and show everyone that it's possible to achieve your goals in magic uh, if you just put your mind to it.
0: Yeah, I think people often um don't understand the amount of work that goes into being good at the game, right? Like as you already said, it's a hugely complex game, a lot of different variables. So um and also I think it's one of these things where success just doesn't happen overnight. So um have you been able to uh let other people understand or instill maybe the the, the work that goes into the Getting better, or like, or are they looking for mostly like quick solutions to, to things?
1: Um, I have plenty of people who are looking for quick solutions, uh, and those are mostly uh, people who can't really play that much, and they want to attend one tournament, mm. uh, but they don't really have a lot of time to prepare for that one tournament. So they're looking for kind of a, a catch up to so say, you know, I really want to do well in this one tournament. You know how how much can I catch up in that time? And, you know, I, that is a perfectly understandable situation. Um, because I've definitely had periods of time where I just couldn't play magic that much for that week or that month or whatever. Um, and I still want to play the tournament, but I also at the same time, I don't really want to play the tournament if I don't think I can win. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I want to give myself the best chance to win. And in those cases, uh, it's mostly just a catch up of uh, what the format is you know here's what decks people are playing here's how to win in the format um, you know some tr- tips and tricks and uh, those are the people looking for quick solutions um, and then I have a lot of other friends who are playing all the time and they're very interested in, in just general knowledge about how to improve how to uh, just do things better and that's more of an ongoing process and it's a process that i find fascinating so i'm always willing to talk about it with anyone who wants to talk about it um and you know those are the people who you know they play a lot or maybe they don't play a lot and you know they still think about it a lot they're just interested in magic and uh You know, everybody's uh, circumstance is different, and, you know, I find that whenever, you know, someone comes to me for advice about one of those situations, no matter what it is, there's something to learn from it. You know, if somebody is trying to catch up quick on the format, uh, whenever I do my best to give them a good, thorough answer, you know, I have to make the gears in my head turn, Uh and I... I, I find it a really valuable thought exercise. Um, and then whenever someone is asking about, you know, how to get better in the long term, that's another thing where I have to think about it and I have to come back with just all the things that I've learned.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So it's just no
1: matter what type of, uh, you know, advice anyone's looking for, I think it's a really helpful thing to you know, to try and give it to them because it forces you to think yourself and you know not wanting to give anybody any kind of bum advice um, the lessons that I try to give are really valuable for myself, especially if I don't already have them because then I have to learn them for myself
0: that's 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 a great point like just uh I guess one is giving back to the community, but two just that helps you get better yourself and level up. I think that's uh, oftentimes um, people don't understand that. Or maybe I've encountered people who really want to keep things close to their chest because they feel like they have some kind of edge, <laughs> as funny as that sounds, when they don't talk about things uh, or they want it. But then that also stifles them from getting getting better. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and magic, to be honest with you, magic was a lot like that. Uh, back in the day, back when I first started to compete, uh, and possibly a little bit before that, uh, the tournaments weren't as big and the information wasn't as easily available, Uh, so the people who were really good were really incentivized to keep everything to themselves because they were the ones that could win the tournaments. Um, But then as more information became available and people just got better, uh, if you kept all your information to yourself, uh, you also kind of did it uh, under the assumption that it would always be relevant. And you know, if you're keeping your information to yourself all the time, you're not bringing in any new information. And Magic as a game has changed so much over the past you know, 10, 15, 20 years uh, that you really have to kind of stay on top of it if you want to win. And uh, I found more and more that staying on top of it means sharing what you've learned with other people and, you know, pooling resources just to tackle it together because the game has just gotten so big.
0: Right, right. The game has gotten to be to the point where, um, to paraphrase what you said earlier, there you can't really have sacred cows or too many assumptions about things. Things are changing so quickly. And I've also seen, um, as you also mentioned, sort of like a few... Weeks a few years back, um, the advent of teams, right, where people are working together on on technology or or uh, styles of play, and I think it's really hard to go at it alone. But I, I hope whoever's listening to this can 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 take that and extrapolate that as like you wanna you wanna network, you wanna branch out, you wanna help other people because that will ultimately help yourself get better, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I could not be where I am without the help of, you know, anyone who has taken the time to help me.
0: Yeah, so can you talk a little bit about the, the team or teams that you're, you're in right now? Because um, uh, I, I imagine you're, you're preparing along with people. So can you tell me about some of the, the folks that you work with very closely and, uh, and how you guys uh, work together?
1: Um, so right now I am part of a wonderful pro tour team called East-West Pole. Uh, and this group formed uh, kind of on accident because um, you know, for Pro Tour Atlanta earlier this year, um, I found myself without a team, and I decided I want to, you know, I want to try something new. I want to try uh, analyzing limited data. And anyone who wants to, you know, be a part of this can. So I got all of my friends uh, from around where I live who are qualified, and um, there was a guy on my previous Pro Tour team for Pro Tour Milwaukee from California named Mark Jacobson, and uh, he said, "Hey, if you want to try and make this happen." I know a lot of people from California that are also qualified that don't really have a team and maybe we can join forces. So we all kind of got together in a Facebook group and with the intent of analyzing limited. And what happened was um, we ended up uh, breaking the format. Um, we had uh, a guy on our team named Ben Whites who designed the blue red Eldrazi deck that uh, Jia Chen Tao ended up winning the tournament with and Uh, we kind of came out of nowhere and won the tournament. And so that one big win, you know, resulted from, you know, finding a broken deck and preparing really well for Limited, better than I'd ever prepared before. And that kind of bonded us. Like, we were fired up. We were so happy that we succeeded. And uh, we just couldn't wait to come back and do it again for the next Pro Tour. So, you know, we've uh, been together for three Pro Tours and... The next one coming up is uh, Pro Tour Kaladesh in Hawaii, and uh, we've we're we're starting to to outline how we're going to prepare for that one right now.
0: Excellent, excellent. So it it, would, it sounds like it's not even you guys are not even bound by geography or locale, right? It's simply people, uh, folks that you trust, who you've you've uh, gone to battle with, and and through the internet or through Facebook, you've been able to sort of um, sure, sure ideas and, 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 uh, and, and break the format, right?
1: Yeah, we, we prepared almost exclusively online for that Pro tour. And since then, we've been incorporating some more local testing, um, which is, is still really important. Like, it's important uh, to, to organize drafts. You know, you need to have people in the area that want to draft if you want to practice draft, um, because uh, the set's not always available online until the couple days before the Pro Tour but for the most part uh, constructed testing it's possible to share a bulk of the info online in the days leading up in the in the weeks leading up to the Pro Tour and um, as much testing as you can get done online the weeks before before you even start to show up to the locale of the tournament
0: you know that's just that much
1: that's mu- that's that much more practice that you get in
0: okay that's that's really cool. And switching gears again just slightly. you had touched upon this uh, a little bit, but I really want to know just straight up like what are your magic related goals um, maybe this year or maybe for the next couple years. I want to know what are some of the things that you really want to achieve um, in the in the short or, or medium term?
1: Um, so this season, I really want to try and make a run at gold level, uh, since they switched the pro club to uh silver, gold, platinum, I've kind of always been silver. And, uh, I think that you can approach it. Like a season is completely different for you, whether you're silver or gold, uh, going into a season as silver, you have to kind of stress a lot about qualifying for each pro tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you go in as gold, you're automatically qualified for every pro tour. And, you know, you can just focus a lot more on, you know, you don't, you don't have to worry about, oh, I need to win this PTQ to even play. You know, you can focus a lot more about uh, improving your method overall. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of my biggest goal this season. I want to see if I can make a run for gold. Uh, that's for this season, though. Um, for the long term... I really want to see magic explode I want to see it uh, get to the level of eSports and I don't know if that uh, is gonna happen anytime soon, but I think that uh, there's no reason it can't um, I want to see magic teams you know go bigger with sponsors and uh, have more positions on them like coaches and you know managers uh, and I think that's a really easy way for Magic to kind of go huge, you know if you have a magic team that 's a professional team that has an income outside of the tournament uh prize winnings mm-hmm. you know, that that's how you could be a new age magic professional you know you don't have to just win tournaments to make money you can you can take a a, a different kind of position and still be a magic professional
0: I see so are you saying that you want to? Advance Magic as a game or eSport through your own involvement in it, through setting the right example, and being part of that team or being part of a new model of competition. Uh, yeah, that's what I
1: would like to see Magic. That's the direction I'd like to see Magic eventually. You know, I want to see it. Um, I want to see it get to that level, uh, and. Right now, uh, I don't think that, you know, pro magic teams, you know, really see the need or have a need for a position like a coach. And I want to try and investigate and see what a coach could do that could provide value to a magic team. And if I could
0: make that happen, then,
1: you know, that's another way that I could potentially advance magic as, you know, a sport or an eSport. Okay.
0: So why, why do you think that hasn't happened yet? I mean... Because the other with the other games in eSports, it's fairly advanced in that right but um and let's take coaching as an example or the importance of uh sponsorship uh, is there just like what what is causing magic to be uh maybe behind the curve when it comes to that in your opinion
1: um right now, I think it's the money um magic prize money has kind of stagnated because. Uh, right now I think the only money in Magic is uh, Hasbro advertising budget Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, or like if you're in a a tournament circuit like a Star City um, you know Star City runs their tournaments to kind of sell their uh, singles and that's you know it's awesome it's really fun playing in those tournaments but you know I want to see magic like I want to see the magic pro tour sponsored by coca cola or something uh and you know have a much bigger prize purse where there's a lot more incentive to be very methodical about how you uh how you approach the magic tournament you know you want to kind of guarantee that you're you're gonna do better and win
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and so I you know until I, I think that magic is going to have a hard time growing unless it starts to attract more Prize money from you know whatever source, whoever wants to you know give money to Magic players, I I, I would take it from wherever it came from. You know if it was uh, more money from Hasbro directly or more money from a, a sponsor,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think that would that would really grow Magic and give it more incentive to just be a bigger game than it is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, people tend to follow the money trail or the cash. So if you have uh, uh, an infusion of cash or prizes or something on the line uh, that definitely helps grow the, uh, the game I, I fully agree with you there so I just want to know going back to the goal you said about the going from silver to gold what are some things that you've identified within yourself that you feel that you need to achieve in order to level up uh, so to speak Um,
1: so I have always kind of been, uh, more interested in either modern or limited. And, uh, the way the pro tour is going right now to succeed, you really have to be good at standard. And I've always kind of been weak in standard. So, um, one, you know, goal that's really specific to magic, uh, for me right now is I want to kind of try and improve my standard skills Uh, and I've found it to be really hard because you know a game of standard is actually really hard you know there's a lot of different things that you have to track Um, and you know compare it to modern where uh, most things in, in modern are happening in the first few turns and it's you know kind of you know, if you put all of your focus on those first few turns and building your deck you, know, you can get a good grip on a game of modern but for standard to really kind of master standard you have to understand what's happening in the, the middle of the game where the games start to kind of get you know, murky and it's not clear what resources everyone has available to them you know, or what kinds of you know, cards that they're playing to um and that's a skill that i have yet to develop uh really effectively um but it's it's something that i really want to work on for this season because i don't think i'm going to be able to succeed uh either on the pro tour itself or preparing for the pro tour without having uh, a good methodology for approaching standard
0: yeah that makes total sense Uh, you want to go towards where the the game is going uh, from a competitive level. So again, that's, that's super awesome that you have that self-awareness and it sounds like you're, you're going to be sort of, uh, on your way to doing that hopefully very soon. Let's hope so. (laughs) So, uh, I'm going to wrap up the interview with one final question for you. And the question is, this is kind of a time travel question, but I, it's kind of lame or cheesy, but I like asking it anyway. (laughs) So let's try it. Uh, let's imagine that you could actually go back in time to Alex uh, Majlatan from five years ago, right? Or um, let's say around five years ago. Are there things that you would tell yourself if you could have that opportunity, whether it comes to magic or, or life or both or uh, all of the above kind of thing? Like what, what are some things that you, you think you've really learned in the last five years that, um, that, that could have helped you um, maybe a little bit earlier?
1: Yeah, there are definitely things that I would tell myself. Um, with regard to Magic, uh, I would love to tell myself that there's no substitute for playing the games. Uh, you just have to put the work in if you want to win. and um, It's also good to just question everything. Challenge every idea that you've had about Magic in the past. Um, because some things that you you know thought might be true, might be sacred cows, like you mentioned earlier, are actually different because the game changed. Um, so I would just I wish I could go back and tell myself to just try everything, try every angle I possibly could.
0: Okay, what about when it comes to things outside of magic, uh, potentially like um, life, as as it were?
1: Um, outside of magic, uh, I would love to tell myself. That you know, there's really no reason to not be direct about what you want or what you're going for. Um, the I found that whenever you know I'm trying to achieve a goal, I end up doing. I end up doing a lot better when I'm more direct about what I want. Uh, instead of, you know, just trying to find a way to make it happen without, you know, having to take a risk or put myself out there. And I found that, you know, the consequences for taking risks are, on average, not nearly as bad as I would hope. And, you know, the rewards for taking risks are much, much better than I ever thought they were. So I would go back and I would tell myself, you know, don't be scared. Take some risks and be direct.
0: Take some risks and be direct. No, absolutely. That's, uh, that's, that's great advice to live by. I think, yeah, it's made me think about certain things in my, my life as well. So, um, uh, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, so Alex, I think it's been a wonderful conversation with you. Uh, I really got a chance to learn more about sort of what's been going on with you and how you approach the game and uh, and sort of the self-awareness that you have which is very uh, it's a breath of fresh air so um, I want to thank you so much for for doing this interview spending the time with me and uh, I just want to leave this final part to you if you want to if you have any shout outs or is anything else that you feel like needs to be added uh, feel free
1: um, yeah, I want to give a shout out. First of all, I want to give a shout out to Ben Friedman for referring me here. I had a lot of fun answering these questions. Um, I want to give a shout out to my pro tour team, everyone on East West Bowl. Uh, and I want to give a shout out to my local magic community uh, in the Maryland area, uh, in particular to a guy named Andrew Mitchell, who is uh, one of the reasons that. We get to have so many good games and so many good people to play Magic with week after week.
0: Awesome! So I, I've had, I've had a great time talking to you, Alex, and uh, I hope we can do this again sometime.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, James. Thanks a lot.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Humans of Magic. I would love to get feedback from you on how to make the show better. You can find me on Twitter at James underscore Sue. That's James underscore H-S-U. Please also check out my website at writtenbyjames.com and drop me a line. Thanks for listening and have an awesome day.